First, I'm going to extend the reading that Noah read, the Palm Sunday reading. And this is one of those adventures in the lectionary, cutting off a passage before like the real meaty, challenging part. And so she ended um, right there at, uh, in the Palm Sunday reading, right there at um, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And then she stops. <laughs> we'll keep going in verse 39 to verse uh, 40. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. As Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He said, if only you knew on this all days the things that lead to peace. But now they are hidden from you. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you and circle you and attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely, you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on top of another within you because you didn't recognize the time of the gracious visit from your God. It's a little more haunting on Palm Sunday. I also want to read um, from, to continue in our Psalms of Ascent, from Psalm 126, a familiar psalm to us, um, because that's going to frame our time together this morning. Psalm 126, a song of going up. When the Lord changed Zion's circumstances for the better, it was like we had been dreaming. Our mouths were suddenly filled with laughter. Our tongues were filled with joyful shouts. It was even said at that time among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are overjoyed. Lord, change our circumstances for the better, like the dry streams and the desert waste. Let those who plant with tears reap the harvest with joyful shouts. Let those who go out crying and carrying their seed come home with joyful shouts, carrying bales of grain. That's the word of the Lord for God's people. So Jesus is on the move. At least that's the story of the latter half of Luke's gospel. It says he set his face towards Jerusalem in chapter 9, and everything kind of shifts in the story. Jesus simply asked his disciples, those students who are assembled around him, to quote-unquote follow me. So they've been following him around Judea, as Jesus heals and tells stories, as he sends his apprentices out to tell of the peace which God was accomplishing and to invite others to be part of it. They followed as he taught them how to pray. They prayed to the heavenly father that his kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. And each of these activities all kind of has the same contour and shape, renewal, rebuilding, restoration. Heaven is invading earth's cracks and thorns. The kingdom is coming. There's a lot of anticipation building. So finally, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem. And by the time he gets there, 
there's this whipped up hype and fanfare and it generates quite a crowd. And crowds of this sort then and still are kind of viewed as exciting, but also a little threatening. Consider some of the crowds of the last several years um, of all sorts. Crowds for Moral Mondays, crowds for the Super Bowl, crowds in Minneapolis, crowds in Kenosha, crowds at the Capitol. In uh, the year 111, the Emperor Trajan wrote in a letter to Pliny the Younger, he said, when people gather together for a common purpose, whatever name they may give them and whatever function we may assign them, they soon become political groups. So crowds become political, and there was quite a crowd around Jesus. Expectation has been built, and there are all sorts of signals that are sparking for who Jesus is, or at least who the crowd hopes for him to be. This is the king returning for the first time. But there are clues that this is a different sort of king. There are all these little subversive edits to the story. First, instead of a war horse, Jesus comes on a humble colt. Think of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. This is something like a presidential motorcade in a O2 Dodge Neon or something like that, right? It is sturdy. It is useful. It is blue collar. It is common. And interestingly enough, and maybe like liturgically embarrassingly, Luke doesn't even have palms in this story. Did you notice that? It's one of those things like you, you, you can look at it a million times and your expectation has built up something that's not even there. There's no palms in, do, in Luke's story. We, we'll collect them. We'll pick them up. The other Gospels emphasize these palms, though, for their, their royal resonance. When you read Luke, though, prepare for a palmless Sunday, right? So the people are gathered in this political crowd with or without palms, and there's this procession happening, and they're crying, Hosanna, which means God saves Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. All this commotion freaks the Pharisees out a little bit. Let's manage the expectations a little bit. Maybe they're thinking, tell your disciples to cut it out. They're obviously taking this whole thing a bit too far. They talk about peace, capital P, peace. Not just like inner peace or some sort of calm or meditative bliss, but a cosmic peace. The stitching back together of heaven and earth is what they mean. And Jesus replies, I tell you, if, if they keep quiet, the, the stones would shout. I've sung that line in like praise songs before. They, they coach us to sing um, because our silence... Uh, would somehow make us more oblivious than inanimate objects and building materials, right? That these things would have more knowledge than humanity. While it's true, 
sings of its creator. This is replete in the whole scripture. The Psalms and prophets talk about these references of trees clapping hands in Isaiah 55, the heavens declaring the glory of God, Psalm 19. Revelation talks about every creature on heaven and earth and sea giving blessing, honor, glory, and power to the Lamb who sits upon the throne. But given how ironic this procession already is, given what we know about where and how Jesus' journey will end, what if this phrase is a little less of a humble brag and a lot more of a prophetic lament from Jesus that the rocks would cry out if they keep quiet? Maybe it is a prophetic lament. You see, those rocks that'll testify to who Jesus is and what God is up to, they represent the foundational building blocks of everything they understand about themselves and God. The foundation, if, if that is moved or shifted, they no longer know who they are or who God is. Even the rubble of their precious temple, that place of overlap, intersection of heaven and earth, the place of their worship and their reconciliation would be mown down. Jesus knew a hard rain was going to fall on them. This is the stuff of Jeremiah and Lamentations. But none of that, even if all of that was shaken up like a snow globe, none of that could derail God's plans for whole-making shalom. None of that. Think about that next time you, you feel like your, your faith, your life, your everything is on the rocks. None of that can, can derail what God is doing in this world, in your life, and through you. It's this brilliant little spark in this processional as the, the crowd cries out, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. It is darn near the same cry earlier in the Gospels in Luke when the angel shows up to the shepherds bearing good news of great joy for all people. This happens in Luke 2 uh, around Christmas time, right? The company of angels praises God singing, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is, this is Luke starting the story and, and, and penultimately capping it. Notice the same cadence, glory and peace, which extends from heaven to earth. God's healing presence has arrived. The crowd is actually saying the right thing. Jesus couldn't silence them. However, his comment about the rocks hints that they know the ending, but they couldn't possibly understand how they're going to get there and what the next week is going to entail. They couldn't foresee what it was going to take um, for glory and peace to continue to work its way through the fabric of creation, namely the cross. Again, we have another, crew, uh, another clue here. Jesus' itinerary, where he's arriving is important. Jerusalem is the city of David where big things happen and glory and peace would certainly present themselves, but we're told that Jesus' flight gets rerouted through the Mount of Olives. Did you notice that little detail in there? Through Mount Olivet. Jesus has been on a similar imaginative journey as we've been through this Lenten season in the Psalms of Ascent. He's going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem, no matter where you are, north, south, east, or west. But Jesus goes a little out of his way to be at the Mount of Olives. And I think he does this on purpose. I think it's really important. 
because the Mount of Olives is the place where grief happens. It's the place where grief happened for David when he heard of his son Absalom's conspiracy to kill him. Second Samuel says, David, his head covered, walked barefoot up the slope of the Mount of Olives. All the people who were with him covered their heads too and cried as they went up. This is also the place where grief happened, but also where hope happens in Zechariah. A day is coming that belongs to the Lord when that which has been plundered from from you will be divided among you. The Lord will go and fight against those nations. Um, It says, on that day, he will stand upon the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives will be split in half by a very large valley running from east to west. Half of the mountain will move north and the other half south, and you will flee through the valley of my mountain. This, this mountain is really important in their collective imagination. They might not have even realized what was happening in their midst. Finally, flash forward a few chapters in Luke's gospel. This is a place of Jesus' grief and Jesus' hope. As he prays to his heavenly Father, an echo of the prayer that he teaches his disciples, as his closest friends sleep on him, they, they, he prays for them, that they might not fall into temptation, that the cup of his suffering might be taken from him, but above all, that, quote, thy will be done. Even as an angel appears to strengthen Jesus, he sweats blood on this Mount of Olives. All this intensity, we see grief, we, we, we preview hope. This combination of grief and hope is still so present, even in the midst of the palm processional celebration. Verse 41 says, as Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He came to the city, he observed it, and he wept over the city. What a remarkable reconfiguration of the concept of Vini Vedi Vici, right? I came, I saw, I conquered. This was a not-so-humble brag of Julius Caesar in 47 BC after a swift military victory. I came, I saw, I conquered Jesus and said, comes, sees, and weeps. In, in an I came, I saw, I conquered world, he comes, sees, and weeps. In a world expecting triumphant messiahs who have it all together and ride in on war horses or at least Humvees, Jesus opts for a donkey. Did you also notice it was a borrowed donkey at that? Who knew they'd encounter such an improvisational and participatory Messiah? What they probably saw as haphazard and lacking, which is what we probably see when we notice that he's riding a borrowed donkey, might just have been a little wink from Jesus. A nod that Jesus is embodying the God who is never in need. The king of creation, the father of lights who gives good gifts, the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. Of course he could ask for that donkey because it was his to ask for. And Jesus includes his friends in this gathering. Go ask for that colt. Tell him the Lord needs it. This 
He includes his friends in this conspiracy of subversive peace. They are looking for someone who will punch their ticket, but they get someone who in the ascent language of Psalm 126, who sows with tears and will reap with songs of joy. That's the kind of Messiah we get. This asymmetry is upsetting to them. Maybe it's upsetting to us. Why are you just watching all of this happen, Jesus? Why don't you do something? Don't you care about things like cancer and mass graves in Buka? Or maybe we're just standing there like Martha outside of her brother Lazarus's grave questioning, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. Why are you so late to the party? They are looking for a Messiah, a Christ who can make it all right. They have seen Jesus doing miracles. They've seen healing, casting out the demonic, bringing healing and wholeness. Jesus says these rocks of your temple and city are in a heap because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. You didn't recognize God coming to you. This is a really damning diagnosis that they aren't recognizing a visit from God because for all intents and purposes, they're, they're recognizing it. That's what's happening. They're rolling out the red carpet, so to speak, or at least taking off their clothes and throwing them down before the motorcade. They're singing the right words. They're humming the right tune, but they're woefully off key. Maybe it should be more of a minor key. He knows this about them. He knows this about us. That so many times God can be present to us, standing right in front of us. And even as we know that that's happening, we're largely ignorant about how to be present to this glory and to this peace. We don't see it. We can't see it. And oftentimes, instead of receiving these moments as gifts, these arrivals as gifts, especially in the midst of things like suffering and trial and loneliness, we perceive them as, as a threat or as a problem or as opposition or as a lack. We need that improvisational spirit of Jesus to pick these things up and say, yes, and. People would sing hallelujah, God save us, and a week later they would chant crucify him, and they would opt for someone like Barabbas who had a better profile for embodying their revolutionary plans and interests. Maybe the rocks that signal the destruction of the temple should cry out, would cry out better, because these rocks in this rubble are part of a, a whole story of lamentation. They're thoroughly acquainted with being torn down, uh, with grief, with despair. But these rocks also know hope when they see it. They know what rebuilding looks and feels like, to be set back upon one another and plumbed so that they'll, they'll be straight and stand, even if it's not according to the original blueprint, even if things will never look the same. So let me propose a little formula. 
I know my preaching doesn't often lend itself well to note taking, but this is for the STEM people out here. I'll use a formula that somehow grief plus hope is in that little block is like lament, grief plus hope makes way. There's some change that happens here, some delta that occurs that it gives way to glory and peace. Grief plus hope gives way to glory plus peace. This is precisely how God is working in Jesus. Grief plus hope gives way to glory plus peace. All of this is so incredibly surprising. Not just because the ingredients are surprising. Like I, I used to work as a printer and we had a saying uh, basically so that clients wouldn't expect Good, a good product from a really bad file. We'd say garbage in, garbage out, but we'd try to say that nicer to them. And so you think this equation, you look at it and you'd say garbage in, garbage out, but somehow God transfigures and transforms the garbage of grief into something new, into something whole. So the ingredients are surprising. Who would have ever thought grief would go with hope, let alone beget glory? And this is maybe why Jesus is saying, these things will lead to peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Because not only is lament an unexpected thing for a savior to experience, but resurrection is an unexpected way for glory and peace to manifest. And that's exactly what this next week that we're preparing for is about, what Holy Week is about. It is, it is gathering up our lament, our grief, and our hope, and that becomes particularly acute at the cross at Good Friday, a place of utter despair, a bright abyss, and then giving way on Easter to this peace, into this glory, this resurrection. We'd so much rather settle for propping up and reinforcing some of the patterns of this world and the ways we want to imagine healing than having our whole paradigm shifted towards resurrection and new creation. But what if the remaking of the world is going to happen through the death and resurrection of its savior and not through either a military coup or some self-contained religious ceremony, but what if death itself and all the sin and all the alienation that has led to it is being decisively dealt with in Jesus? Jesus is conquering death by death. And in the process is offering this world, is offering us new and eternal and unbreakable and unfearful and plenteous and durable and infectious life. The only sort of life that is actually life now. If we just, we, we, to get that life, we, we kind of just have to like scrap the old equations. We, we need to crumble up our plans for our lives in this world and throw them into the trash and just and only and completely just follow Jesus. That's his disciples' journey. They fall down on it. They run away from it. They sleep through it. <laughs> that's our journey. But that's the journey. That's the plan. So what if Palm Sunday, that is first and foremost, an ironic holiday of lament before it was ever meant to be a holiday of celebration. Because lament has this spiritual and emotional integrity to hold together the disease and the cure. 
the, the not yet and the already grief and hope ultimately blossoms into resurrection. The, the Palm Sunday kind of encapsulates the whole gamut of the Holy Week experience. This beautiful and terrible that is wrapped up and bound inextricably tight. What would it look like to walk away from this good news story that Luke tells? Like for us to be changed by Luke's story of the palm processional. To walk away with the palms that we received in hand. Having a little bit better clue of what actually might lead to peace. Maybe you hang that palm up as a reminder to spark your your thinking and your prayer about what actually might lead to peace. How that looks like in Jesus' life. It, it might, might um, help you initiate a prayer to the Spirit to, to let the scales fall from your eyes so that you can see or dig out your ears so that you can listen and hear the Lord's call to follow him. And then it, it might rework our imaginations so that we can participate with Jesus in this strange, strange way of saving the world, this donkey-borrowing, lament-singing, tear-sowing, joy-reaping kingdom. It kind of had it like a Ric Flair kind of cadence to it, right? <laughs> that we might wave these palms and, and somehow know better what we, what we mean when we say, Hosanna, God save us. Will you all pray with me? Jesus, you have saved us, have saved this world. You are saving us. And Lord, at the end, you will save us. Lord, as we go out of here, infuse our lives with that expectation, with that lament for the way the world is and our participation in it, in a new direction towards your peace, towards your glory. We give you thanks for, <laughs> for being exactly who you are for the ways that you don't fit our expectations or, or, or the cheap hopes that we have for what it would be like to be saved. Help us learn to follow you. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.